I, I encourage you to be a part of groups, groups. Groups have changed my life. Being in small groups with people that are in those groups with intention, with the intention of um, growing, of loving and getting to know each other, taking the mask off, being real and honest. And I mean, they're just vital. I don't know how anybody, anybody gets through life without relationships like that. And groups are a way, great way to facilitate it. So I hope you will take advantage of a small group of some kind, if not multiple. Well, we're closing in on the big day this year. Christmas is just a few days away. And so I hope you're already getting to enjoy some of the special things that just are associated with, with this season. Certainly family, uh, good food, there may be different selection of food. Some of the, uh, I've been enjoying getting those cards in the mail with pictures of old friends and families watching them grow up. That's been fun. And maybe just, you know, some of the goodwill and cheer that just in general is elevated among a broader swath of our culture at this time. I hope you're enjoying some of that in general. Those who are Christmas light lookers, that's a kind of a part of the season is our houses all are get lit up and a lot of houses do. And if you're familiar with Amarillo, it's been a while since I've reminded you of this there, you know about Candy Cane Lane. It is otherwise known as Gainsborough Road, which is my street. And Candy Cane Lane transforms like it used to be down. It's a, it's a mile long piece of street between Bell and Coulter. It used to be just the first block of Coulter called Candy Cane Lane. And I mean, 20 years ago, they were like, uh, there had to be a million light bulbs in that one-tenth of a mile, but it is slowly uh, spread all the way down, and I'm on the other side, the bell side, and it has long come down and surpassed my house. My kids always wanted me to decorate houses, you know, our house, and I was pretty resistant to this idea for multiple reasons, but I gave in and started decorating every year and contributing to Candy Cane Lane. Some of you know about this. Some of you are new. It's the ball. That's right. I put up the ball. Even though my kids are gone, I did take a Saturday, set it aside, pulled that out of the closet, and hung it and plugged it in. So Candy Cane Lane is complete. And uh, so if you were in last night, that big yellow limo, you know, that gets rented, it came by. It slowed down in front of my house to admire my my decorations. And uh, I get some people say, Brian, you're so lame. You're just hanging a ball. But I'm like, no, I'm not. I can prove it to you. I can prove it to you. After dark tonight, you come down Candy Cane Lane. You will have to sit in a mile long of cars just to go by my house and see the ball. I know I'm contributing to Christmas tree. Sometimes I'll hide, you know, when it's dark, I'll hide under one of my trees in the shadows and watch people go by and admire the ball just to, you know, I just feel good about contributing. And when it's warm enough, the windows are down. And this is more proof here that, that I'm contributing here, that they'll go by and they, there's, there's lights lit up houses all on our street, but they slow down at my house. Someone in the car with the window down gets everybody's attention. I see their hand. They point to the ball and laughter ensues in that car. I know I'm spreading the Christmas cheer because anyway, I like, we, we are country. So you can come by and you'll see mine. It stands out on my street. Uh, and I hope you enjoy it. It's a special time of year, lots of sweetness to this time of year, but as always, I'm also thinking about some of our folks and just folks maybe that we don't know in our city that Christmas is bittersweet for them. 
And it's because of loss or loneliness or some other just thing, some, some negative thing that's associated with this holiday time. And so I'm thinking of you too if you're in that category and I encourage all of us to be on the lookout for those people, right? Amen? Just look out for them at all times, but especially at this time. It might be hard for us to imagine, but Christmas for some people, December calendar turns the page and Christmas comes. We're talking about missing Christmas, but they feel like they go through December and it changes to January and Christmas misses them. There's people like that. You, you may know the people, but you don't know their experience in that. So I want us to be the kind of people that keep that from happening for someone. Right, Just for someone. We can't do it for everyone, but we can do it for someone. So I hope you're, you've got your radar on for that. So today we do continue our sermon series that I've entitled Missing Christmas, where we're taking a look at some of the characters in Scripture surrounding the story of the first Christmas, the birth of Jesus. People who, even though they were right there at this monumental moment in the history of humanity, but they totally missed it. They missed it, this major milestone in humanity's history. And uh, we spoke first of King Herod. We talked about him and how he missed the gift that Jesus could have been to him because he had no interest, none, in surrendering any category of his life to another king. He wanted his own life. He wanted to be king of his own life. And so that's what he wanted to do, so he missed it. And I invite you to reflect on your life. What areas of your life do you have no interest of surrendering to God or to God's will. That's just, you don't, you don't want that because you want what you want. And us, I want us to consider that we might miss Jesus because of that. We spoke last week of the innkeeper briefly, and I proposed that he missed the first Christmas because he was just too busy. The Roman census, his, you know, his inn was, you know, full and people coming and going. We understand we can have sympathy for busyness and missing important things because of busyness. So I invite you to reflect on the busyness of your life and to not let it ever make you miss Jesus as well. So this week, it's not just one individual character in the story. It's a group of people. It's a group of people. And the group that I want you to look at this week, like we can understand how the innkeeper and Herod could have missed it. These are the people who should have been the least likely to miss it. And that's the religious the religious people of the time, in particular the religious leaders, but it, it really goes into the whole religious group in Jerusalem, the Jews. And unless you're looking, you might not even notice that they made an appearance in the birth story, okay? We're too focused on the Magi from the east and who they are and what they're doing following the star. And we're focused on Herod and just his vileness and how he puts on a mask and pretends he wants to. We, we're focused on them. So we, if you're not looking, we're naturally drawn to those, but they are right there. So right after the Magi come into Jerusalem and go to Herod and they ask, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Right after that, it says, when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief, here they are, chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied. Then they do something that is completely unsurprising because they're the religious leaders. They know the Bible, so they quote scripture. 
They say, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Okay, so that's their role. And then we don't hear about them again. This whole coming of the Messiah, this whole thing, we do not hear of them again. And you, you might go, what's the big deal? But I want you to pause here. And think about this. Think about the Jews. Think about the Jewish people. That's who lives in Jerusalem. And then their leaders. These, so the leaders, they're the theologians among the religious people. They're the minds. They're the, they're the brains. They're the religious elite of Israel. They knew scripture well enough to quote Micah 5.2 just from memory when asked. Because that's what they're committed to. So they're the leaders. And, and it says, you notice, Herod called all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law. So these Jewish people, all the Jewish people in Jerusalem, led by these leaders, taught by these leaders, ministered, they minister in the temple. These are the leaders. They are all the most devoted to Scripture. And they have been waiting for the coming Jewish Messiah. For centuries, okay? I mean, they have been waiting for hundreds of years, if not millennia, in, in some ways, that, like I'll show you. These guys want this king of the Jews, this shepherd of God's people to show up. They are waiting for it. These leaders are the ones teaching this consolation of Israel is what he was called. He is coming. He will be born. He will come in Bethlehem. And so it just seems like when they got called by Herod, and ask this question, this would have been notable for them. This would have been potentially actionable. Like they should have cared more. Enough that we would see them merge into the story and, and, and we would know more about what went on there. The waiting of the coming king was thick in all the Jewish people. And they learned to see this promise not just because he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. That should have triggered interest. They, they go back, that's Micah, okay? That's the prophets. It's towards the end of our Old Testament. That's four or 500 years ago. But it goes past the kingdom of time of King David and all the way to Moses. They had verses in the narrative of their scripture that they said pointed to this. So Moses in Deuteronomy 18, 18, it says this. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. I will put my words in his mouth and he will tell them everything I command them. The way Old Testament prophecy works, it has a role to play in the narrative that's time bound to that time. But the Jewish elite, religious elite, they learn to take that scripture and see a prophetic context for them too. Okay, and so they said this was Moses declaring prophetically that there will be this coming Savior or Messiah or Christ or King. And if that's not far enough back in their history, they, they, some of the Jewish leaders even took it and saw a prophetic word all the way back in the creation story. Right? The creation story, Adam and Eve, they sin, and then God shows up in chapter 3, and he curses Adam, he curses Eve, and then he curses that serpent that represents Satan. And at the end of that curse, here's what he says, I will put enmity, enmity, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. 
So many of the Jewish leaders and teachers said, "Uh, that's a reference to our coming Messiah. This is thousands of years of momentum and teaching and eagerness for the coming Messiah that's supposed to be born in Bethlehem to come. And with the Roman Empire having taken over, that might have increased their anticipation and desire for that Messiah to come and to restore all things, right? And to, 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 to save them, to serve them, to lead them. I mean, it is thick in the DNA of all the Jewish people in Jerusalem because of their teaching, but especially these leaders that were called to Herod. It just seems like we should hear more about the religious leaders. I mean, this is big news. This was big news for them in the story. And this was big enough news that it seems like, like I said, it should have demanded action. So first of all, so I started getting just kind of creative in my thoughts of what didn't happen here in Scripture. So they get called to King Herod's palace, right? And they probably drew straws. Whoever the short straw went, because you remember a couple weeks ago, you do not want to be called to King Herod. He is one bad dude. You may not be coming back if you go there. He was murderous. He was paranoid. And so they go. But I guarantee you, I mean, your spouse or your kid or your parent can get a phone call and you'll be interested. Hey, who was it? What did they say? You know, this is like when they came back, you can guarantee the other leaders that didn't go, what did Herod want? What did he say? Right? That, that probably happened. And so they're back taking a deep breath, but they said, You're, get this. He asked where the Messiah, our Messiah is supposed to be born, like prophetically from scripture. And they said, what? Why in the world would Herod suddenly be interested in that? Yeah, because there's this band of scientists, philosophers, astrologers from the east. I mean, they've come a long way. They have traveled months and they are here and they asked. They, he, they asked what? They asked Herod where the king of the Jews is supposed to be born because they have followed a star to come and worship that king of the Jews. And I, you and I just don't get this, but they would have dropped silent. Like they used those words. They said king of the Jews. Yeah, don't they know Herod? thinks of himself as the king of the Jews and that they might get killed. They don't know. Of course they didn't or they wouldn't have asked. This would have been just shocking news. So what did he do? Well, he was freaking out when he called us, all panicky, but we told him and then he got himself together and he went back to those guys and he said, okay, it's supposed to be in Bethlehem. Hey, and then he pretended like he was interested and he sold them on that. said, when you find him, come back so I can go and worship this king of the Jews too. Can you believe he did that? This would have been big, massive news. Just because of the character of King Herod and how he is. But at some point, I imagine, I'm just imagining all this, the conversation then would have moved to something even more epic, more important for the Jews. That's not just Herod and the larger-than-life presence he is in their life, but the subject matter at hand. This is the thing. Who came from where? Asking what? And, and Bethlehem, so they're on their way to Bethlehem. I mean, that enough, that alone should have been enough for them to say, hey guys, can we come with you and just explore this with you? Or, or send at least a couple of our scribes with you. At least, if they, even if they're skeptical, just to knock it out is a possibility because they're waiting for this moment. Could this be it? I mean, this is a pretty dramatic event for them. And so, If they had gone, I imagine if they had gone, 
they would have eventually done their research and they would have found, if not just follow the star, they would have found their way and found Mary and Joseph and they would do what I would do, start asking them questions. So tell me about, you know, tell me all this. And at some point as they're getting to know them, they would have found out that they're in Bethlehem, but they don't live here, but they're having their baby in Bethlehem. Why are you here? Well, you know, the Roman census going on. This is where Joseph's from. So we had to come here to register. Gotcha. Where are you from? And they'd say, yeah, we came from Nazareth. This is lost on you and me because we're not those Jewish leaders, but they knew their Bible. They knew the common prophecies about, they would have stopped taking a breath and looked at each other, maybe fainted. Why? Because they are Jewish enough, like Matthew was Jewish enough, to know another prophecy about the Messiah. And, and Matthew writes about it just a few verses later. He says, it says, so was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Can you see them just, they should have been there. They should have been doing that. This seems like it should have happened. And even the star, even when they heard that it was a star that these strangers are coming, naming our king, saying they want to worship our king. How strange is this? The star had an Old Testament reference that some thought might align with this. It's in Numbers 24, 17. Again, it has a role to play in the narrative in Numbers, but some saw it prophetically. And this would have stuck out to them because they know their Bibles. It says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter, that's a king, a scepter will rise out of Israel. Can you imagine the excitement, the disbelief, the awe, the wonder that should have been happening among these guys? I mean, I can just see them go, I I always wonder. I mean, the king of the Jews, they call him. These stargazers traveling to follow a star to get here. How else could they get here? We don't know. A baby born in Bethlehem that's from, their family's from Nazareth. I could see one, I would have. I could see one of them going, I always wondered how in the world our Savior was going to be born in Bethlehem but be called a Nazarene. How, how, they couldn't in their most creative way come up with how that happened. So when they interview the parents of this kid born in Bethlehem, they're from Nazareth. It might have been their first time to go. Mind blown. Could this be it? It seems like they should have. They taught these scriptures. They promoted the idea of this, but they were not there. I told you last week that I think it'd be cool if in our little nativity scenes, we put the little baby Jesus on our shelf and we got Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men and the animals and the innkeeper and his family. You know, like that would just been cool. He could have been there, but these guys, they should have been there. They should have been being attentive, not just teaching this, but attentive for it, exploring it, finding out, but they weren't. So why weren't they? Why weren't they? So again, we're not told specifically, but I'm just putting forth, making my case for a guess that it was because they were comfortable with how things were. They were completely comfortable with how things currently were. And it's a guess, but it's my educated guess that it was comfort that was part of the reason they weren't open to this idea. So the first clue that I have that... uh, 
for this educated guess that they were comfortable is it's, a, it's the listed reaction. We read it. Not just of Herod, but did you see it? But of all of Jerusalem. Not just Herod was disturbed. All the Jews were disturbed. That's who lived in Jerusalem, mostly. It's the Jewish people. They were disturbed. And it says, when the king Herod heard this, he was disturbed in all of Jerusalem with him. And disturbance is the opposite of comfort. Being disturbed, disrupted, that's the opposite of being content, being okay with how things are. So the idea, even the long-awaited idea that the Jewish Savior might be here, disrupted. They knew that would be big news, and it would change things. It would change their normal, centuries long of normal. And guys, I hope you can just have ears to hear this. Hundreds of years is a long time to get used to how things are. To get comfortable with power structures and think think of think of all the great sermons these Jewish leaders had in synagogue about the consolation of Israel and our awaiting king and the scripture passages they use. That's all gone. They got to throw all those sermons out. If if he's here let alone so many more implications. So they taught these scriptures. They promoted the idea of the good in the coming Savior and King. But the possible actual fulfillment of those prophecies would have changed everything. It would have disrupted things. It would have disturbed the way things are. And that was uncomfortable. That's, so that's one clue, just that little word. My second clue is just the rest of Matthew. And we won't go through it now, but... If you go through the rest of Matthew and just look at how Matthew presents the attitude and the demeanor of these chief priests and teachers of the law. This wasn't the only time just here at their birth, at the birth. All through Jesus' life and ministry and message, no matter how much sense he made, no matter how often he used their love language, scripture, to box them in to the only possible conclusion being openness to him being that Messiah, no matter how much they happened, they resisted it. They were not open to it. And while I think there might be a few reasons we could name, I think they all kind of can come back to the hub of the wheel that they were just not comfortable with him being the Messiah. They were not comfortable with the change that it would demand, even though based on what they taught, what they said they believed, they should be excited, hope-filled, joy-filled, So on that theory, how about you? I think of two ways in which our own comfort can take priority for us over Christ. That our commitment to our staying comfortable can steal from us Jesus in our day. Like it stole stole Jesus from them in their day. So the first one's pretty obvious. Christ calls us to follow him. We talk about that a lot around here. And we can't be flippant about it. When Jesus calls us to follow him, to follow him means you necessarily are moving from where you're currently at. In lots of places, inwardly and possibly outwardly. It's being called from where we're at to go wherever he takes us. And then wherever he decides to take us from there for the rest of our life. I'm reminded of a verse where he tells someone who said, hey, I, let me go home and say, you know, tell him I want to leave and follow you. And he goes, hey, the son of man has no place to lay his head. That's not this, that's not this kind of life. He, so that means there, 
if you need a place to lay your head to be comfortable, then Jesus' call is not for you. Because I'm being hyperbolic here, but you got to hear it at that heart level. We have to be agile. When he calls us to serve, when he calls us to give, when he calls us to change or transform, it can mean leaving what we've become comfortable with. It usually does. That's why it's called sacrifice. If it's not uncomfortable, then it's no sacrifice to follow Jesus. When he calls us to come, or he calls us to go, or he even calls us to wait, we are uncomfortable. Discomfort in the call of Christ is everywhere. When he called those fishermen to drop their nets and follow him, it was not to this life of ease and comfort. It was to leave the life the way they've gotten comfortable with it, the way they feed themselves, the way they take care of themselves, the way they're comfortable, what they know, and to drop everything and follow him. There was one glorious guarantee he would later make to those followers that is not very glorious in our ears. It's in John 16, 33. In this world, because you follow me, in this world, you will have trouble. Troubles associated with the call of Christ. So in this way, our commitment to comfort over Christ easily make us miss, just whiff, miss Jesus, even if we're religious. Even if we're religious. The second one's a bit more subtle and maybe a bit truer to what I see in these religious leaders at the time, how this should have been good news, but they were uncomfortable with embracing good news. Even though they said they wanted that long-awaited Messiah, they intellectually believed it would be better for them if he came. When he potentially arrived, they didn't initially respond with these open arms, let alone joy and hope. Why is that? So to answer that, I want to go to another story that has always struck me. It's over in John, and it's a healing story. John chapter 5, starting verse 2. It says, Now there is in Jerusalem near the Sheep Gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. Okay, this is where the homeless and the hurting and, you know, the needy, they would congregate here under those colonnades next to this pool. It's not in all your scriptures in there, but it's in your notes at the bottom. Some manuscripts say that an angel of the Lord would come to this pool and, and stir the waters. And if the, the hurting that needed healing got in those waters, they would heal. Okay, so that's kind of the background that they would have known about for this story. So it goes on. Here, a great number of the disabled people used to lie, the blind, lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. That's significant. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, okay, it was only after he learned he had been in this condition a long time, he then asked him this curious question. He asked, he doesn't say, here, let me heal you. He doesn't even just heal him. He asked him this, do you want to get well? Isn't that interesting? After he'd heard he'd been there on the cusp of healing for 38 years, but has never taken advantage of that healing, he asks him, do you want to be made well? Isn't that interesting? So, The invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I mean, Jesus will eventually heal him, and that's 
awesome. But what struck me here and what I want to point out to you today is the question. This should have been the easiest question that Jesus has ever asked anyone in all the world. What's the answer? Do you want to be made well? What's the answer? Yes. Yes, I want to be made well. Of course, yes, I want to be made well. But he didn't say yes. Instead, he gave, he spun a story for why he's not. So just like hundreds of years can be a long time to get used to, to get comfortable with, the perks of waiting for the Messiah, 38 years is a long time to get used to, to get comfortable with, the perks of being an invalid. So it's a valid question. Do you want to be made well. And we need to admit that sometimes our comfort rises to a level our comfort with how things are may compete with the call even for something that we would intellectually say would be good for us because it's just too hard. I'm just uncomfortable with it. I'm just protecting the perks of how things are, even when it's good news. So how does this relate to us? What I want you to reflect on today as we approach Christmas. Well, Jesus has the same invitation, those two, the same invitation and the same question for each of us today in our, in our individual ways. Come and follow me. That's the invitation. And do you want to be made well? That's the question. We have those same questions. And I am telling you, whether you were aware of it before this moment or not, your commitment to your own comfort competes with how you will answer those questions and how you will respond to that call. So here's the question I want you to reflect on today in response to the religious. In light of the call of Jesus, the call of God, are you too committed to your own comfort? In other words, do you want what you're comfortable with or do you want Christ? A comfort all of its own, a glorious one, more worthy than any of the comfort you're hanging on to. The consolation of Israel is the consolation of your heart too. It's a larger story and it goes well, it affects here and it goes well beyond here and past the grave. It is worth it. It is worth it. But some days you might decide it's not. You might decide it's not. I want to ask our elders and our ministers and spouses, they're going to move around the room just in case you need a prayer. There is something you need or you want to know more about this Jesus. This is why they make that move. And let me just bring this right down to earth. Ask our praise team to come up as well. I face this question almost every morning in a much lesser sort of way, but one that just brings it down to earth. Uh, we, we kennel our dog, Monster. He lives up to his name. We kennel him at night. He sleeps in, in the kennel. And mo- a lot of mornings, not all mornings, but a lot of mornings, I wake up to him down in his kennel barking. It's the call of Monster. He, he wants out. There's, and he's got some reason. And I lie in my bed. I check the time. And I have to decide. Is my comfort in this bed this morning... My commitment to my precious sleep, because it is, the older I get, right? This precious sleep is my commitment to that. I weigh it against the call of monster. 
and how important I imagine that is. And, and it, is a, it is a legitimate question. And I know that's a silly example, but it is not unlike in a very real palpable way when Jesus interrupts me with an offer to join him or an offer of healing. I have to decide, aware or not, I am weighing inside of myself. Is it worth it to me? Is it worth the discomfort for the promise of even more? Both look too costly at the outset. Both require me to face the question, am I more committed to my own comfort, to not disturb the status quo, or to Jesus? I hope you today... It's before Christmas, but I'm just saying before your next call or invitation from Jesus, your next offer from him, that you will predetermine right now. Right now, because you're aware now, you will say, you'll find it. You'll have that moment. Mm, I really don't want to. Why? You'll examine it, and you'll decide, yes. Yes, I do. Yes, gloriously. It's the simplest question in the world, Jesus. Yes. Yes. Help me. Save me. Let's stand and let's sing. And if we can help you in any way, please come.